Welcome to the Present History Podcast. This is the second part of our fascinating conversation with Annie Whitehead. So if you haven't already, make sure to check back and listen to part one so you can kind of know what's going on. But if you have already, sit back and enjoy. Yeah, no, so, so all of that is, is so fascinating. I've been interested in uh, the Anglo-Saxon period for a while now, and especially uh, Athelflaed. So it is, it's just all fascinating to me. Yeah, I, th- I think the Anglo-Saxons, uh, for me, it's, it's the, the characters. Yeah, They are um, so individual and I find them so distinguishable, which I think a lot of people find difficult, but you know, I, I can be writing something about four different characters, all called Athelwald, and I, I know who they are. Um, I, I just think they, certainly the very strong characters you know and an individual so where the names aren't confusing where you've got the likes of, of Pender and Offer and Godiva um they're, they're one-offs really yeah yeah no absolutely absolutely and one of the the better known uh, figures in Mercian history is Athelflaed who you mentioned earlier could you tell us a little bit more about her and her story yes yeah um well I say yes um What's really fascinating about her life is that we seem to know her so well, and yet there's very little information about her. So we know that she was um, King Alfred's eldest child. Um, Asa tells us that, and say he was a contemporary living in King Alfred's court. So we have to take most of what he says as as true. but he leaves out huge details. Like for example, he doesn't actually name Alfred's wife. He tells us who she is, that she was a Mercian. Uh, he tells us where they got married, but he doesn't actually ever mention her by name, which is incredible. Um, but we know that Athelflaed was, was the eldest child. Uh, we're not sure when she was born, probably 869, 870, something like that. Um, There's a thought that she might initially have been brought up elsewhere. This is an interpretation of something that Asa says about the younger children of Alfred uh, were at all times brought up at the royal court. So the inference might be that that wasn't necessarily true of the older children. It's not a lot to go on. If Athelflaed had been brought up elsewhere, Mercia is the obvious place because her mother was Mercian. Um, if she was there as a young child, I think she probably came back when the Vikings arrived at Repton. Her uncle, King Burgred of Mercia, was forced to flee. Um, so if she had been there, then I think she would have gone home. So we have to assume that she was aware of her father's um, you know, uh, struggles with the Vikings. Uh, even as a young child, um, in eight, uh, my dates right, eight seven eight, there was an attack um, at Chippenham. So if Athelflaed had been there when her father then had to escape uh, to the marshes in Athelney, it's possible that she was was with him, and so grew up with all this fear and awareness of of what was going on. As a probably a teenager. Then she was married to Athelred, Lord of the Mercians. Um, we have to assume he was a fair bit older than her. So he wasn't a king of Mercia. Um, 
that was King Burgred who had to flee. He was the, probably the last king. There was another one, Churwolf, who seems to have been working with Alfred for a while. We don't know what happened to him. Um, so Athelred wasn't a king. So we have to assume, therefore, that he was of an age where he'd already proved himself as a tried and trusted warrior in order to be elected leader of the Mercians. And um, he was helping Alfred in London to, to get London back in, into English control. And around about that point, um, Athelflaed was married to him. So this wasn't a love match. This was a, a diplomatic, you know, political alliance really. And um, she then became Lady of the Mercians. And for a long time, her husband, her father, and then subsequently her younger brother, Edward, who became known as Edward the Elder, were fighting together, you know, working as a sort of triumvirate against the Vikings. And they're named in the sources as, as working together. And then Athelred disappears from the records. Round about 902, there are a few things going on where you'd expect him to be named because he had been and suddenly he's not. And so there's, there's battles going on where in the past he would have been mentioned and he's not. And then when we look to um, outside of the English sources, um, particularly the Irish chronicles, um, there's a, a fragmentary annal which is a little bit untrustworthy but full of detail when we look at what they say and the basically the absence of a reference to Athelred it does seem clear that round about 902 he fell ill and was incapacitated enough to no longer be able to be fighting and it seems like around about this point Athelflaed took over and we are told, um, for example, when the Vikings um, were in Chester causing trouble, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle just says Chester was restored. It doesn't say by whom. If we turn to the Irish um, Chronicle, I mean, it's, it's more like a saga really than a chronicle. It gives us lots of detail. And in that, it talks about Athelred being on the point of death and directing Athelflaed. Um, so it's sort of, it's almost like it, it's his campaign strategy, but he's physically unable to, to, to go there. And, and so she's sort of deputizing for him. Now that in itself is incredible. He died in 9-11. And what's even more incredible is that she then became the leader of Mercia. So the Mercian Council obviously elected her. They were quite happy to be led by a woman. Um, her brother, who was King of Wessex by this point, King Edward, also seemingly happy to let her rule. Maybe that at that point he was being stretched a little bit too thinly, you know, because you have to wonder why didn't he just steam in and, and take over himself? And it may be that he, he wasn't able to at that stage. Um, but brother and sister then worked together very strategically to, to push the Vikings back. So gradually regaining territory, 
um, regaining this, the, the five towns are known as the five boroughs, really strategically important. So the likes of Lincoln and Stamford, um, I can never remember all five of them. Um, but just pushing back and it looks when you look at their strategy of pushing and the borough building the boroughs being the, these fortified towns that they built it is very strategic so you know brother will be building to allow sister to push back and then sister will build and consolidate to allow brother to make further gains so it was you know really working in harmony and um as I say, obviously happy for her to lead. I don't think she ever fought. A lot of people do call her a warrior woman um, and she has that reputation. There's no evidence. If you look at the things, she sent an army into Wales. She regained Derby, um, but doesn't actually say at any point that she was fighting. She may have done, I don't know. I'm not convinced. And then, 918, um, she died at Tamworth in a, a, a position of strength. The people of York had actually uh, come to asking for her protection against a new wave. So the, the, the Danes who'd been um, the, the bane of Alfred's life really were, were by this point starting to settle and integrate but there was the new wave the Norse kings that the Norse coming over from from Dublin and um, they appealed to Athelflaed for help um, and she actually entered into a, a tripartite alliance um, and then sadly died and again the most astonishing thing I think of the whole story is that albeit briefly she was succeeded by her daughter, which means that a woman was succeeded by a woman ruler. And that didn't happen again in England until Tudor times. So it's, it didn't last long, as I say, because um, six months after that, Edward then did um, go in and take over. The, the various reasons for this, I think one, if, he wasn't able to earlier and had wanted to. Now he had adult sons. The Vikings had been pushed back. So he was in a, a better position to take over. So I think that's, that's one element. But he was clearly happy to work with his sister. So I do wonder whether her daughter was perhaps not quite of the same calibre. Maybe Edward wasn't prepared to work with her like he had with his sister. But the remarkable thing is that the Mercian Council elected her daughter. They were, having been led by one woman, they were happy to be led by another. And I think there are a number of occasions, even going in at further into the 10th century, where the Mercian Council elected a different king. So there was this stubborn streak of independence even though they were no longer a kingdom themselves, I don't think they were ever really happy to be the junior partner of, of Wessex. So we've got this incredible situation, woman leader followed by a woman leader, Mercians happy for that to be the situation. And I just think it's, it's incredible, but we piece this information together through a tiny, tiny contemporary source, which is um, the, it's known as the Mercian Register. It's 
been uh, incorporated into the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, but it only, what survives only charts the years 902 to 918. And there it talks very much about the, the borough building programme. And, but it does talk about her daughter being deprived of rightful authority. So, I mean, this, this is a, a chronicle that's been produced in Mercia by Mercians, and it's saying very definitely, she was the rightful leader. She had the authority um, and Edwards, you know, steamed in and, and taken over. So, but, but that, that's, that's all we have really, um, as I say, just, just piecing together the little bits and pieces of her life from, from these various sources. There's really not very much. And it's, it's so strange. She's not even mentioned by name in the main Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. She's only ever mentioned as Edward's sister. But that main chronicle is being written in Wessex. You know, it's almost like a court chronicle for Edward. So obviously they're going to play that down. And that's that's the bias that I was talking about earlier. So we have this strange situation. We've got this incredible female leader. This is, you know, almost unique and yet hardly mentioned in the sources. And you think, well, if it was so unusual, why didn't they mention that it was unusual? It's, it's almost like, yeah, this thing happened and it was huge and it hadn't happened before and it didn't really happen again. Um, but also, yeah, this it's not going to happen again. So why not make a point of saying it was unusual? It's, it's a mystery. Uh, and I think that's what I really love about her story is that it's so strong and yet we know so little about the, the circumstances. Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating. It's, it's incredible, and and this Mercian willingness, this acceptance of female rule, was this something that was unique among the other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms? Pretty much, yeah. Um, she was certainly the longest ruling. There were a couple of other um, incidents. There was one. Queen of the West Saxons, who is actually mentioned in the regnal list, so that the lists of, of monarchs that were compiled. Um, but if she ruled in her own right, it was only for a couple of years. One of the later Anglo-Norman chroniclers said that the um, West Saxons refused to go to war under her leadership. And looking at it a bit more closely, it does seem to have um, happened at a time when the, um, the kingdom was uh, in, not revolt, but it, the kingship was disputed. And it's possible that this lady, um, Saxborough, was actually fighting as a regent for her son's right to rule. Um, but as I say, she, she was mentioned in the regnal lists. Um, so technically, yes, a, a queen, but um, if so, only for a couple of years, and it would seem it didn't end well. There's no other examples. There was a Queen Athelborough, who's mentioned in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, um, raising Taunton to the ground. Um, we don't have any other information. We don't know why she did, but she wasn't a queen in her own right. Again, it might be that she was fighting on behalf of a son because women did that an awful lot. Um, so yeah, no, Athelflaed I think was was unique, uh, apart from her daughter, obviously, because you know, had Edward not taken her, then then she wouldn't have been. So. Yeah, wow, wow, and and 
And something you mentioned there were were these women that would fight on behalf of their sons. And there's this widely accepted idea, this image of the Vikings having their shield maidens, these women that would go to battle with them. Is this something that we see in Anglo-Saxon culture as well, that the women would, would go to battle with their sons or husbands or brothers or whatever it was and, and fight with them? I'm, I'm not sure that there's any evidence for that. Um, again, I know there's, there's, there's a lot of research going on at the moment, particularly in terms of the Viking warrior women, the shield maidens. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm looking at all that with interest. I'm not sure there's much, if any, evidence that Anglo-Saxon women did. The huge examples that, that we know of, of, of women really going all out um, in, on behalf of their sons, the, the women tended to play a different game. Uh, and, and a famous example is um, the tussle after Canute's death um, between his two wives. Uh, so Elfiever of Northampton, who I mentioned earlier, and uh, Queen Emma who uh, famously was married to, first to Canute and then to Athelred the Unready. And these two women uh, set about a huge, well, it's a propaganda war, essentially. Um, so really slating each other in letters um, and a famous document, um, the Encomium Emma Regile, which Emma um, commissioned to tell her story and it's a real, I always call it the, the first uh, work of spin because it is pure propaganda. Um, it completely airbrushes her second husband out of the picture. Um, it is written on uh, basically to, to strengthen her son's claims to the throne. Um, and it's, it's really a wonderful work. And go back to something we were talking about earlier, again, literacy. I think for Emma to have commissioned this this work of propaganda, I think she would have wanted to read it herself. So I think that's probably an indication that she too was was literate. But yeah, the, these two women really, you know, went at it a huge war of words, and um, they were sort of adept at extricating themselves from difficult situations by making promises that they weren't necessarily going to keep. Um, it's a fascinating story and just one really good example of how the women would work, you know, not necessarily needing to wield swords because they, they had other weapons in their arsenal. Um, there was a, a famous seventh century queen who, um, again, we, we're not told her name, um, the wife of King Redwald, who was, um, we assume, the, the, the missing body in the Sutton Hoo burial. And uh, Redwald had, had been on a little trip down to Kent. Uh, he was the King of East Anglia. And he'd come back and he decided to take on this, this new uh, religion. He was going to convert to Christianity because that's what the Kings of Kent were doing. And the Kings of Kent had lots of links with uh, the continent. So they were, you know, the sort of role model. They, they were the people to, to copy and to emulate. And with this lovely story of King Redwald, I always imagine coming back sort of really jolly and sort of whistling a happy tune and, and telling his wife that he converted. And she essentially said, no, you haven't. 
Um, <laughs> and that was that. And, and he changed his mind. And I so said, we, we don't know her name, um, but she obviously, you know, she literally had the king's ear and she had this influence and she didn't like the fact that he'd committed. There's another story too about how some, at the time he was um, giving shelter to an exiled Northumbrian king and some assassins uh, came to, to do away with him. And again, she was instrumental in persuading her husband not to let this happen. Um, and we, we get all this from Bede, um, who's, it, it's interesting again, that he gives us this story um, about this powerful pagan woman. Um, so, you know, we have to, to, to give it a bit of credence, um, but I find it a fascinating story about how these women were, you know, they, they weren't necessarily prepared to just sit down quietly and, and let the men get on with things. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. This is something that you've written about elsewhere as well in your book, Women of Power in Anglo-Saxon England. Where would you say that Athelflaed ranks among these other women um how does she match up how how does she stand it as an anomaly really um i think you know as i was saying earlier she she is almost unique in in actually being the designated leader of a kingdom and and whether she fought or whether she didn't she she ruled in her own name um not as a queen. The, the Welsh and the Irish um, annals actually do call her a queen. And the, the, the word queen is, is a little difficult because it doesn't quite necessarily always mean what, what we take it to mean. Um, and you've got some uh, king's consorts who were named queen and some who weren't and some who witnessed charters and some who didn't. Um, but she was called the lady and that was a really important title her mother was remembered as the lady of the english so again not queen but a very important um title but ethelfled is an anomaly because as i say apart from her daughter there are no other examples what we've got um the the history of the women's story i mean a lot of them aren't named in the main anglo-saxon chronicle so you have to go fishing and a lot of them were venerated, so their their lives were written, you know, so we've got the, the, the life of St. Mildred or whoever, and that we get a lot of information from there. We've got powerful queen consorts, we've got powerful abbesses, uh, royal daughters, royal wives, royal sisters, um, all wielding power in their own way. Um, but Athelflaed is, as I say, an anomaly because she's the only one apart from that West Saxon queen, who actually ruled a country in, in her own right. In her own right, again, technically, perhaps, a lot of the charters were, um, the land grants were with Edward's permission. But she and her husband did issue charters in their own name, on their own. So they had a, a degree of autonomy. But this idea that she ruled, you know, as a widow, so not alongside a man, as a lot of the others did. I mean, Offa's wife, Cunethrith, was um, part of his ambition to, to establish this dynasty and, and have his son anointed while he was still alive. And Cunethrith actually had coins minted in her own name, which, as far as we know, is unique. Um, 
just you know we haven't found any others doesn't mean they're not out there somewhere but um so she's another one who's very very powerful and um alcuin who was the northumbrian at charlemagne's court wrote letters to her son and it, basically he said give my regards to your mother um i know she's too busy with state matters to write back herself it was that kind of so she's she's there she's in government but um all the time alongside her husband and when he died she then retired to an abbey you know she she didn't she actually witnessed charters while while her son was in his minority so again probably acting as regent and you see this a lot with powerful uh widows of kings who then um act as regents for their sons and there's lots and lots of examples of those but but not ruling in their own name um you know without a son to follow them and as i say in in that Athelflaed was unique yeah no, it's, it's fascinating and you mentioned uh, plenty uh, of other women in that book could you tell us a little bit more about them oh yeah i mean there's over a hundred um which when I started, I thought, well, you know, are there enough stories here? And and I flicked through the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, and I think the women are mentioned by name fewer than fifty times um, in in the, the period that we're looking at. Um, but lots and lots of of powerful um, queens, who by and large were already daughters of kings, because in in the early period, kings married kings' daughters. They didn't really marry um the the nobility so it was royals marrying royals and a lot of times you get um the so-called peace weaver brides um traveling hundreds of miles which you know it's so easy to write oh yes you know um this lady um was a daughter of the king of kent and she married the king of northumbria you know that's such a simple sentence to write but that is a journey of hundreds of miles. Um, the expectation on them was huge. Uh, one particular lady who was the, the daughter of the King of Kent was written to by the Pope and he sent her personal gifts and also asked her to help and encourage her husband to convert to Christianity and to then um, convert the people of Northumbria. So again, a very, very important role that she played. She probably had absolutely no choice in the marriage. You know, they didn't have a lot of say. There were laws um, that Anglo-Saxon women did not have to marry people that they didn't want to marry. But I don't think this necessarily applied to the, the daughters of kings, you know, who, who were there really to, to make these political alliances. So they traveled hundreds of miles. They, you know, as we touched on before, wielded incredible power in their own way um you know either through propaganda or persuading their husbands that actually this course of action is is not you know ideal they also were keepers of uh, the royal archives so um king kenwolf i mentioned earlier his daughter became abbess of winchcombe and this was a repository of the royal archives and she was an incredibly powerful lady. She was one of the ones who, who locked horns with the church at Canterbury, um, trying to, to keep hold of all her estates. Um, so they were hugely wealthy, very powerful in their own way. 
and also a lot of them suffered um, at the hands of more often than not the later Anglo-Norman chroniclers so these you know the embellishments that I was talking about and and this particular lady uh, William McMarmsbury told a story of her about how she contrived to have her younger brother murdered um, I don't see how it can be true because we don't even have any evidence that this younger brother ever existed but um, there's a, a, a lurid tale about how she contrived to have him murdered and then when she was discovered her eyeballs spontaneously fell out and um, it's a story I mention a lot because it's it's it is literally fantastic um, so yeah um, King uh, Edgar's third wife uh, well actually I think probably his second wife I, I don't believe his first wife existed but that's a, a whole other story um, she was accused variously of um, this is a wonderful story she decided to murder an abbot um, who'd seen her um, dancing provocatively with horses uh, I think she was naked at the time as well um, and so she arranged to have him uh, stabbed under his armpits so the wounds wouldn't show she was accused of witchcraft she was uh, very famously accused of murder um, so her stepson Edgar the, uh, Edward the Martyr who was murdered at Corfe which happened to be one of her homes and and it is perfectly possible in that instance that it was her supporters who killed him um, so you know she she really suffered she had a, a really bad reputation but when you go digging um, further into her life, she was the, the first consecrated queen, it said, um, you know, so when her husband was uh, crowned, she was crowned beside him. And we have details of that coronation day in um, a life of um, a bishop who actually was her enemy. So again, you look at the bias and you think, well, okay, they're saying that she was a legitimate queen we're going to take their word for it. She was actually asked to intervene in uh, law cases. Uh, she actually spoke up on behalf of women in litigation. Um, so there's this whole different side and that was fascinating about digging up these stories about these women. Um, yes, they were accused of various crimes, almost always by the much later and less contemporary chroniclers, but actually they were wielding power, they were influencing decisions, they were fighting on behalf of their sons, and they were literate, and they were speaking up for other women in law cases. So there was this whole other side to their lives, which is, yeah, maybe not as uh, lurid and spectacular, but, you know, more impressive, and for me, more interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then all these women were powerful and formidable and and stood up for themselves and and they kind of subvert this idea of of weakness or subservience that usually comes along with uh the idea of anglo-saxon culture how important do you think it is that these stories continue to be brought to light and, and talked about oh massively massively i think if you leave their stories out then by and large, what you're left with is an image of a, a warrior society, um, which is not untrue. Um, you know, it's the same of, of any age, really. You know, people went to war and by and large, it was the men who went to war. But if you put the women's stories back in, 
you get a rounder, more nuanced picture, um, not just of the, the sort of political history, but of society. So if you, if you look carefully at the details, you will find, for example, that we know, um, going right back to 7th century B tells us that the, the, the women had their own households. And um, so, so Wilfred famously went to the queen for sponsorship rather than the king. So they had separate households. Um, we've got some surviving wills from noble women that give us huge amounts of details about how um, noble women lived during these times. And again, we find that they had books. So presumably, again, they were literate. Um, they were again making huge bequests to you know, leaving their land to whom they chose. And, and this was a, a right of women. The land that they took into a marriage was theirs to keep. Um, so you get a much broader picture, I think, of, of society as a whole. And you realise that it isn't all you know, warfare and swords clashing, that there's a lot of diplomacy and clever operating going on. And as I say, if you look at the, the women's stories, you get a much better picture of, of what was going on in society as a whole. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and you write historical fiction uh, as well as non-fiction. How do you go about blending fact and fiction? What does your creative and research process look like? It starts with, a, again, a story, a character. So... Um, I mean, even going back to student days, there were certain people whose, whose stories I wanted to tell in fiction. So it'd be somebody who appeals to me or a particular period of time that, that fascinates. And then I really, really research. Um, and it was actually interesting me because I, I got back into the history through writing and my independent research was actually um, partly what was um, enabled me to be elected as a member of the Royal Historical Society. It was actually the, the research that I'd done. So I do take the research for fiction very seriously. Um, but it's, so in fiction, you can, uh, sorry, non-fiction, you can say this happened. You know, as I said earlier, this, this particular queen started life in Kent and traveled to Northumbria. And so the fiction is, well, how how was that for her how did that feel um yes this happened but why did it happen what was the family dynamic so I try to build the people up as real characters you know almost sort of breathe the life back into them if you like um and and take it from there and I try never to mess about with the timelines um, just very occasionally I might move at a death six months here or there um, but I try to stick to the the known facts and then just fill in the gaps as plausibly as I can um, so so it's it's not non-fiction I am taking you know artistic license um, but it's my sort of imaginings of, of what was really going on in the lives of these people that's that's what I try to do yeah no it's it's brilliant it's it's brilliant and so the last kingdom <laughs> you probably get asked this all the time uh but but what do you think of it how does it stand um I mean it's a great story I just put that out there um Bernard Cornwell writes a brilliant story um the translation to tv 
I think in some ways wasn't quite as successful. And I know I've, I've got a lot of um, fellow authors and historians who, who don't like that they got a lot of the historical detail wrong. Um, the square shields was, you know, caused a bit of apoplexy. Um, but I think essentially, certainly Applefly's character is very similar to how I envisaged her. What I don't like is the portrayal of the Mercians um, because they come across as very weak. Um, Athelred particularly, he's portrayed, certainly in the TV series, as a, a young, very callow man. He wasn't, he was a lot older than her. Um, he was much more successful militarily and he was, I, I think, a much lovelier bloke all around. Um, there's a lot that stretches credulity. So they've got in the series, um, Athelflaed's mother still being alive 20 years after she died. Um, you know, so, but it's very interesting because I watch it and I go, that didn't happen. Um, you know, Citric of York wasn't a Dane, he was Norse. Um, but somebody who doesn't know the period as well will absolutely love the series. And, and I think, anything that gets people interested in and talking about this period it can only be a good thing as far as i'm concerned yeah no absolutely absolutely and so as a, as a final question a bit more of a light-hearted one well i mean depending on how you choose to interpret it but what is something that you would tell your younger self uh, about history about the study of it the writing of it that you've now learned i would say dig deeper um that's something when, when i started writing fiction i i knew all the political history um but what i didn't know was simple things like what did they have for breakfast did they have breakfast what were their their mealtime habits um so i had to sort of start again and look at all the the more the social history and try to find out more about the the ordinary people and how they lived and worked so there's that I would also say to my younger self, ask more about the women, because back, back when I was studying, the women's history, the women's stories were not being talked about as much as they are now. I mean, now it's women's history is, is really, you know, a hot topic. So that's great. One thing I have learned really recently is, and I would, again, if I could go back, I'd do it differently, is even though during my a-levels, I did I studied European history and looking at all the different European countries and how they interacted and the connections. But I didn't necessarily, when I was an undergrad, do that with Anglo-Saxon English history. And now I'm finding that I'm equally fascinated by Welsh medieval history, Irish medieval history, the formation of the kingdom of what we now know as Scotland. And actually, there's an awful lot of interaction. I'm currently writing a piece for a new book that's coming out um, about King Adred. And it's impossible to talk about his reign without looking at what was going on in so-called Viking Northumbria. So I'm sort of, you know, researching much more around the subject than, than they perhaps do when you're younger and sort of being told almost what to study and what to look at. So, yeah, I think I would just say dig deeper, ask more questions and read, read all around as much as you can. Yeah, absolutely. Now, that is that is fantastic advice for, for anyone that wants to get into history or, you know, is already in 
the study of histories it's it's fantastic so thank you so much for your time thank you for coming on the podcast it's been a real pleasure to have you here thank you very much thank you very much thank you And thank you for listening to this episode of the Present History Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about Annie and her work, you can check out her website at anniewhitehead.author.co.uk and you can follow her on Twitter at AnnieWHistory. All the links will be in the description as well. We hope you enjoyed this episode and make sure to follow us on all social media platforms so you can keep up to date with everything we're up to. And we'll see you next time on the Present History Podcast.